thank everyone who uh, had a hand in yesterday. The kids all had had fun. Was, the weather was good, which is always helpful. Wouldn't have been probably as good if it had been minus 25 outside. So, but thank you to all the kids that came as well. They made it. They made it good as also. Yeah, turn into the Book of Isaiah. So if I was to if I was to ask you the question, what are you doing here? How would you answer that? I'll give you a second to think about it. So Why, why did you get up this morning after losing an hour of sleep? Maybe even more if you don't sleep well, but you lost an hour of sleep whether you liked it or not, and yet you still got up, put on some clothes, went out in the cold, even though it's not you know super, super cold, but and you came here to sit with a bunch of other people who did the same thing. So why? You know, from, a, from an outside perspective, looking in on those who, who do that, who, who come and meet and, and worship and praise God, it's almost, uh, it's absolutely bonkers to some. To, to think about going to church all the time and worshiping all the time and living for God. And in Isaiah 53, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and the sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. As we look through the, the Isaiah, we see the picture that's painted here of what the Messiah is going to look like. 
of what the Messiah is going to accomplish and fulfill in, in the terms of prophecy. We get a, a fairly clear picture, actually, of all that those who are waiting for the Messiah should have been looking for in someone who was to fulfill those things. And as we see this and we look at this idea of, of judgment and oppression and, and all that affliction that he takes on on himself, we understand the absolute need that mankind has for a savior. Because you look at all this, this, these transgressions that were placed on him, all of the, the oppression that was placed on him, all of the judgment that he takes on is not his own. Right? We, we realize that in, in reading this passage in Isaiah, that all of that that he takes on is not his own. He takes on that from mankind. So we understand then the absolute need that mankind has for a Savior. We did then, when this was written, we did when Jesus came, and we still do. We have an absolute need for a Savior, for the Messiah. And this is what the Messiah was coming into the world to do. This very thing, right here. As Isaiah paints the pictures hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, we see that this clearly is what Jesus intended to do. He was going to be despised. He was going to be rejected. On him was going to be our judgment, oppression, affliction, our sin, our death. And th this isn't a, a great picture of the reception that Jesus was going to get, but it is an accurate one. I mean, it doesn't paint mankind very well. When the Messiah comes and this is a prediction of what's going to happen, so many years before they knew that this is what the reception was going to look like. And still came. Because he was coming to establish a kingdom that would be eternal for mankind. A kingdom that would have no end. That we could be a part of. that all who come to him can be saved. And again, Scripture very clearly paints this picture, this understanding, that unless we come to the Messiah, unless we come to the Christ, we cannot be saved. We cannot have peace with God. So as mankind needed a Savior, then we still do. Nothing has changed. We haven't... We haven't become so wise in and of ourselves that we've found an avenue to God beyond the Messiah, beyond the Christ. Now the Jews, as we understand and know, had waited for years, generation upon generation upon generation, waiting for the Messiah. in patience and sometimes in a lack of patience and all through those years the picture that Isaiah painted seems to have been changed in their minds and they seem to have lost touch with what God had said the suffering servant would look like and part of that fulfills the, the prophecy because now they, they bring Jesus and, and as John told us they, they have this aggression toward him because they didn't want a kingdom of a spiritual nature anymore they wanted a kingdom that was physical that would 
be tangible, something they could touch and see, something that would elevate them to power and prestige. And they had twisted what the Savior's coming would look like. They did not come to him in humility. In fact, it was the opposite. They didn't want to lose what they had. They had power, and they didn't want to lose it. If Jesus wasn't going to offer them that power, and then he must not be the one that they wanted. I hope that when we uh, understand, as we've been talking about already this morning, understand mankind's need for a Savior, our, our personal need for a Savior, that we don't make that same mistake. That we don't come to him with arrogance and pride and self-assurance. That we come to him in humility and know that it is us that needs him. That we need God. We're not here this morning because God needs us. God would not cease to exist if every single one of us got up and left this morning. We need to be connected to our God, to our Creator. We cannot, we cannot work towards salvation. We cannot earn our own salvation. We come to Him. We are connected to our God through what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has done for us. And that's the picture that's painted in Isaiah. That He came into this world to do this for us. And if we are connected then to his death, his burial, his resurrection, then we get to participate then in the result of that. In the holiness and righteousness that comes from being washed by grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And only through Jesus. As he is a high priest over a new covenant. Of which we can take part coming the church of which Christ is the head. And that's the only way. And so he came to be the suffering servant. I want to look this morning at, at, at three different aspects of, of Jesus. And all of them uniquely him. And all of them uniquely uh, allowing us uh, kind of a different glimpse into his relationship with us and the desire that he has for us to be saved. The, the first one is that he is uh, human, that he is man. That Jesus took the time to come into this world to be man. One of the, one of the first falsehoods that was taught in the church, one of the first uh, you know, things that tried to draw people away from God was that Jesus physically didn't come into the world. And very clearly we see at different times throughout the New Testament this teaching against that falsehood. Because if Jesus didn't come into the world, there's some fallout from that, right? Very clearly we should see that there's some, there's some fallout of Jesus didn't come into the world. Who hung on that cross? Who was, who was tempted? Well, there's no temptation physically if Jesus isn't, isn't human. So, let's go into, into Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, 
we're going to see Luke's. Oh, I'm in John. That's not right. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to see Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census, census that it took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went out from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So the angels come, and they make this pronouncement to the shepherds, and, and what do they say has happened? Very clear, right? There's, there's not much wiggle room here. The Messiah has come. A Savior has been born. He is a child. He is an infant. He has come into this world as a child. As man. Why? why? Why come into the world as man? Why bother? Why go through all of this, this time? Why go through all of those years, the 33-odd years? Why, why go through all of that? Why not just sin is forgiven? Why not? What does God tell us about sin? The wages of it are what? It's a passage we all know. The wages of sin is death. Would God go back on his own word? Would he contradict himself? That wasn't a trick question. No, I mean, so if God tells us that the wages of sin is death, then in order for death to be wa- or sin to be washed clean, there has to be what? There has to be death. So through the, the old covenant, all through the old testament, we see over and over and over again death take place for sin. Now God has allowed mankind to substitute in the blood of animals to wash blood or to wash sin clean for a time, but there was still death that requirement of sin. Jesus came as a man to save mankind. Because God has said that there has to be sin, or there has to be death, for sin. And so he comes into the world and lives. He gives up all that is the splendor of heaven. That that time of being with God, being with and is God, to, to being man. 
And that just boggles the mind, doesn't it? Just think about that. The, the angels come and say, a Messiah has been born, the Savior has been born to you, and he is a child in a manger, wrapped in strips of cloth, surrounded by, if you look at all the scenes we see, surrounded by animals, one of every kind for some reason. There couldn't have been two cows there. No. Every scene we see, there's one cow, like one camel, one... That's not scriptural, that's just the way it is. And, and yet, here is this Messiah. Can you imagine looking at that child and the awe of that? It didn't end there. I mean, he, he was born, so he was raised, he lived, he grew in wisdom and stature, began to teach and share to save mankind, to save us. And it tells us that if he becomes this high priest for us, and in doing so, we have a high priest who can understand us. Who knows what it's like to be us. So he becomes man not only to fulfill this idea that there needs to be death as a requirement of sin, but also that he can know our trials. He knows what it is like to take steps in this world. As a human, what it's like to be tempted what it's like to have those around you die and to have sorrow and to mourn to be tired to need sleep all of, all of these things that he took on so that he could know us so that he could then in that live this life of perfection I sometimes wonder if we fully appreciate the life of perfection that Jesus lived. And it, not that we don't understand it or recognize it, because clearly we understand that he lived a life of perfection, that he was a lamb that was without blemish. But do we appreciate the absolute difficulty of that? Like sometimes I, I read through the, the New Testament and you'll look at it and say, okay, he was tempted that one time, right? And then he, he had, that, again, that little struggle in the garden. But other than those two times, it must have just been smooth sailing because he's, because he's Jesus, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. It was just, must have been just easy for him. And yet that's not the picture that's painted. He, he, he knows what it is to go through our trials. I've often wondered about this. Well, he's on the cross, he says very few things. But one of the things that, that he does say is that he, he accounts for someone to look after his mother. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, the, the love that he obviously has for his mother, that he's concerned for her well-being. But the question that I always have raised from that is, where is Joseph? Now, you can, you can wonder all you want. It doesn't tell us. But obviously the speculation is what? If he's not there to look after Mary and she's alone, then where's Joseph? I mean, it's just, we can understand that he's no longer in the picture. And if that's true, I mean, again, that's kind of just steps you can kind of hypothesize. 
If that's true, then Joseph is gone, and Jesus knows what it's like to have lost a father. Is that easy? Think that ever becomes easy? I mean, that's a that's a struggle. Jesus knows what it's like to go through the trials of being human. And the temptations that we see kind of to bookend his ministry in the beginning and then right before the cross are not the only trials that he went through. It's not as if Satan would have said, okay, you, you kind of uh, answered these three, I'll just leave you alone from now on. And yet he went through all of that imperfection day in and day out moment after moment year after year imperfection doing the will of God so that he could be for us high priest sacrifice so that we can be close to God Jesus is not just human, though, is he? Turn into John. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down into verse 14, and verse 14 of that same chapter. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. And so we have an understanding that not only was Jesus sent from this, this place where He was with God, but He is and was God. Through Him all things were made. All things were created. Through Him. And if you go back into creation and the creation of mankind, what is the wording there in the creation of mankind? Who created man? Okay, so it says, let us make man in our image. This picture that we have of God, and often we, we talk about God, and, and I can only tell you what I think, but sometimes I, I think we say God created man, and I think of God the Father. That God created man. Well, it said, let us make man in our image. And so we have this picture of of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, creating man, creating the world. And so here we have uh, the Son of God who has come into the world as man. The Word uh, in the beginning was with God, was God. And he came and became flesh. And so here we have a Messiah now who not only knows what it's like to be us, who is a high priest for us, who intercedes in our behalf and knows our trials, but also has created us and knows us from the perspective of having been or is our creator. Is there any greater way 
of knowing mankind than having been man and having created man. And so when it says that he intercedes on our behalf, when he became a high priest for us, he knows us. He knows us very, very well. He created us. He was man. And he does all of this for us. His creation. Because of a great deal of love and compassion. Our God is love. And it takes a great deal of it to hang on a cross and to die painfully to take on sin and death when you are without blemish when you have the power to do something else. In the temptation of Jesus, we see when Satan tempts him that almost all of what it is is to use his power for his own gain or to take on power physically to rule over the world. And that had to be one of the great temptations that he faced all the time. To have great power and not use it selfishly. To, to not go astray from the will of God to bring people closer. Now, oftentimes it'll tell us that Jesus was, was walking here and crowds followed him and, or he'd go here and he'd get on a boat and go there. Did he not have the power just to go and be there? I mean, if he wanted to. So why walk the distance? I mean, even, even going out on the boat when his disciples are out on the boat and he walks to them on the water, that's a miraculous thing in and of itself. But why even take the time? Why don't just go from land to boat? Everything he did wasn't for himself. His actions, his words were for us. Literally for us in doing the will of God so that he could go and hang on a cross and have the power to remove himself from that cross and choose not to, to take on our sin and our death. Uh, one of the amazing things in Scripture for me is always, and I've mentioned this before, is the creation of the world, the creation of all that we see in this physical world. The, the vastness of, of space all created by, by God. And the absolute power, I mean, the absolute unimaginable power to just speak things into existence out of nothing. Let there be light. And there was light. Just, we, what? Where does that come from? You know, we always think, well, you know, that has to come from something. You can't just create something out of nothing. You're going to make bread. You don't just go to your oven and say, let there be bread. 
and then open it and go, hey, look at that, as much as I can eat. Well, no, we, we go get the flour and the eggs and whatever else goes in bread, and, uh, and, and then you go through the process of making that because we understand that that comes from somewhere. Jesus has this incredible power, and he hangs on a cross as a man and willingly gives up his spirit. Is that love and compassion? There is no greater showing of love and compassion than that for mankind. In doing so, he becomes our Savior, the Savior, and our Messiah. Saving us from our own sin, our own death. Turn into Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Calgatha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from this cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Look him down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, that God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebel, rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Naman Sabathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine and vinegar put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had been died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Surely he was the Son of God. Surely he was a righteous man. All, all those years before in Isaiah was foretold the, the coming of a suffering servant. Here's Jesus, willingly hanging on a cross. And a couple of things that, that we looked at here that, that always make me shake my head is that they're looking at him, and it says 
go down in verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. So these are the religious leaders of the day. And they say to him, he saved others. What do they mean by that? That he saved others. What do they recognize in Jesus? Now they, they've already, we see in the story of Nicodemus, that Nicodemus comes and says, we understand and know that you are from God. So what do they recognize in Jesus? That he has the power to save others. Now whether that was physically or that he has brought others back to God, they understand that he has done this. If they understand that he has done this, why is he hanging on this cross? He's hanging on the cross because they were the ones that brought him to say, crucify him. Leading the others in this chant to put him there. Doesn't that kind of boggle the mind? That they know what he can do? And, and yet they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So let him come down and save himself. If he, if he wants to save everybody, come down. In fact, what does he want to do? He wants to save everyone and does what? Stays right where he is. Even though he's being mocked, even though he's been beaten, even though he's being crucified, this is the plan of salvation. He is the suffering servant. And the charge that was written against him was posted is true. He is the king of the Jews. Creating a kingdom that will never end. Remember, he does this without blemish. Without blemish, without mark. So that he can take on our sin. That we can be forgiven. And the power that he has is the power to conquer sin and death on our behalf. That's exactly what he does. All of these years later, when we look back at his life as a man, the idea that he is God and, and he's coming to be the Messiah, none of this has changed. It is for us, his creation, that he became man, that he left the splendor of heaven and died on a cross. So that we can sit here this morning and be at peace with our God. So why, why did we come this morning? To worship the King. To be reminded of the sacrifice. To encourage others to do the same. And if you haven't, we should be encouraging those who haven't to do that. And I know we don't want to uh, we don't want to step on people's toes. We don't want to, you know, offend anybody. We want to be nice. I'd rather have someone have some sore toes and be at peace with God. So if you're here today in this room, not given your life to God. 
you need to do so. 100% you need to do so. If you have an understanding that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Messiah, then you need to know He died for your sins. And the only way to have them washed clean is to be connected to Him. And any excuse or reason that you can make not giving your life to God is faulty. Because God is calling you to be His child. Turn into Colossians. Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, it tells us this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross.